Welcome, Welcome to, to the Better, Better Call Daddy Show. This is Big Daddy. Oh my God, that's hysterical. More stories you are not going to believe. And advice that you didn't know that you needed. Five stars. Five and a half stars. We're creating a legacy one call at a time. Here comes my daddy. Your problem is, is that you like me. Papa. My dad is my hero. I'll always be there to take your call. And you'll never be in too much trouble if your dad is around. Oh, boy. I I think I'm a pretty cool dude. Better call daddy. The safe space for controversy. This is your host, Rena Friedman-Watts. No, this is your host, Celia Watts. More inspirational stories, more daddy drama, and more laughs. Hey, a lot of these things, I don't know where you're getting them from. It sounds like they're coming from when I look in the mirrors. Damn the public. Damn the public. Today, we have a special guest. I am taking you behind the scenes of the Masked Saint. He's a former professional wrestler, husband, pastor, father, and grandfather. He is going to teach us some wholesome lessons, and he's taken us back to old school movies. Chris Whaley, welcome. The Masked Saint in the flesh. Yeah, in person. Oh my gosh. I'm so excited to speak with you. What an incredible story you have. Well, I tell you, it's been an amazing life and I've been truly blessed and highly favored. Yeah. Not everyone gets to live out their dreams and their calling, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I got to do both. I got to live my dream and my calling. I want to talk about that. So the dream was wrestling. Right. And when did that dream start? You know, it started when I was a little boy. I was a sickly kid in and out of the hospital. Second grade, I was in the hospital with pneumonia. Third grade, I was in the hospital with pneumonia. Fourth grade, I had polio, viral encephalitis. I was in the hospital for three months. Back in those days, there wasn't a lot on TV. And also, when you're in the hospital that long, you get your days and your nights mixed up. And late at night, you know, I couldn't sleep and I turned the TV on and professional wrestling would be on. So as a little boy, I was just enamored with it. I mean, I couldn't watch enough of it. So I was hooked on it from the moment I started watching it. When I was out of the hospital and when I could get my dad to take me to the live matches, it was just a home run. And I got to, you know, see these guys that I saw on TV And so my dream doing that, I I didn't think it was going to be possible because I wasn't putting on weight and I was just that little scrawny, sickly kid. But then I had a wonderful, wonderful, godly doctor. He was able to find out what was wrong with me. I had, I was allergic to everything. I had over 200 allergies. And so they put me on this allergy medication that I took up until I was a junior in college. And finally, uh, my immune system started to work and I started putting on weight. And this doctor got me going to the gym and I just got hooked on it. I mean, I loved working out. I still love working out. And so my body started transforming. My wife and I, we went to college together and I was working out in college and then we graduated. We came back to Central Florida. She was a high school math teacher. I was waiting to be called to a church as a youth minister. I mean, I was 23 years old. Not a lot of churches want a pastor that's 23 years old. One day my wife's grading papers and and I'm looking at the Tampa Tribune and I saw an ad that said wanted professional wrestlers. 
So I, I'm so excited. I jumped up and I went over to my wife and I said, look, look. And she looked at it. She was grading papers. She looked up and she rolled her eyes and she kept grading papers. And so I said, I'm going, I'm going. So I packed a bag. I drove over to Tampa, went into the gym. And there was this guy that I had watched while I was growing up. He was a, the bad guys are called heels. The good guys are called baby faces. So he was the heel of all heels. He was the great Malenko. So he trained me. And within six months, I had my first match and I started fulfilling my dream in 1978. What was it like when you first met him? You know, I was kind of nervous because, you know, all I had seen was him on TV. So I was, I was very nervous, but he was such a, such a nice guy. And, you know, I told him I wanted what I wanted to do. And he said, you've come to the right place. And, you know, he was just a wonderful, wonderful guy. He helped me in, in so many ways. And uh, he's no longer with us. Bless his heart. He uh, died of leukemia. But he was just a wonderful, wonderful guy and had a great influence, not only on me, but there's a lot of big name wrestlers that he also trained. Do you remember the day that you walked into that gym? I do. It was not the exact day, but it was like in uh, March of 1978, March of 1978. And then, you know, six months later, I was wrestling. That is wild. I'm curious about what was it like when you started versus when you left? When I started, I was crazy because I didn't want to ever be known as someone who didn't go all out. Whatever the other guy wanted to do, I was willing to do it. You know, I had a lot of injuries at the very beginning. I mean, I crushed my ankle. I've had five knee surgeries, both ACLs, MCLs, lateral releases on both my knees, dislocated hips, broke pelvis, broke all my ribs, cracked my sternum, both collarbones. I've had my shoulders surgically repaired, neck injuries, back injuries. I've had over a hundred concussions, broke my nose so many times I can't breathe out of it. Deaf and my left ear because most of the wrestlers were right-handed and you get punched in the ear a lot. So I'm deaf in that ear. And I had more injuries at the beginning than I had at the end, because at the end, you know, I'm a veteran. I've been doing it a while. And if I'm working with some young green guy and he wants to do something, I say, no, we're not going to do that. Which I didn't do that at the very beginning, but I did that at the end. But I still took a lot of big bumps at the end too. Oh my God. And what is it like learning those moves? It just came natural to me. You just learn to do it. And and pretty soon it's just like second nature when you're in a ring with a guy and whenever he wants to do something, you just, I mean, it's like, you know what he's going to do before he even does it. What about the guys who cut their foreheads? You know, that was at the very beginning of my career. They don't do that anymore. Not that I know. The independent shows, I think they still do that. But, you know, it's kind of crazy. You know, you take a razor blade and you cut a little sliver of it off and put it on the end of your finger and then you tape it up and push the tape over it. And then when it comes time to gig, you just pull the tape back, you know, and he'll throw a punch in. You know, men know from shaving. I mean, you shave and you hit a spot. I mean, it just bleeds and bleeds and bleeds because you have so many veins around your head. It was never really as bad as it looked on TV in those days. Whoa. So did you ever do that? Did you ever cut yourself? I did not. I did not. But in the early days, there was an old saying, red turns to green. If you wanted more money, red turns to green. You know, you bleed, you get more money. Wow, that's interesting. Also in the movie, 
it seemed that some of the matches are predetermined. Are most of the matches predetermined? All of the matches are predetermined. You know who's going to win. You know who's going to lose. The promoter is the, the one who determines that. Promoter's the one that's got the storylines on everything. And he comes in before you go out. Okay, I want you to go 20 minutes. You're going to put him over, which means he's going to win. Or you're going to put him over. Uh, you're going to win and give them a good show. And you just, you know, who's going to win before you get in there. Whoa. What else do people not know? It's not always what it seems. You know, there's some pretty rough guys in the business. You know, I worked against the ultimate warrior. He was not a good guy for me. I, other guys said he was great, but he, he wasn't a good guy to work with. I worked against Bruiser Brody. And one of the last concussions I got was from him. And it was from a stomp to the head. You know, he, he kicked you in the head and I mean, you see stars. There's some pretty rough guys in the business, but overall, you know, most of the guys are, are pretty good. Yeah. Also in the movie, you asked for an undetermined fight. How yeah. possible is that? Well, I don't know. There was the big thing in Montreal with Bret Hart. I've been out of wrestling since 1988. A lot has changed in 30 years. A lot has changed. Vince McMahon changed wrestling. In, in the old days, you know, there were 26 territories all over the United States. Florida was a big territory. Georgia was a big territory. Texas was a huge territory because you had the Von Erichs in East Texas and the Funks in West Texas and the Putskies down in South Texas. And then, you know, just uh, the AWA, the WWF, Mid-Atlantic. Uh, you had wrestling, a lot of wrestling on the West Coast. And, and so the, all these territories. And then Vince McMahon is probably the greatest marketer in the world. So he took a fledgling little territory, the WWF, and he turned it into a multi-billion dollar business because he is the guy who took wrestling national and international. You know, he signed a contract with USA Network, with NBC, and he did the first pay-per-view. And pay-per-view is, is huge. And so Vince McMahon changed everything. And so when you have a, an organization that's going national and international, all those territories just started closing up. And then all of the huge talent from all of those territories drifted to the WWF or WWE now. Yeah, that is really interesting. Did you see God in wrestling? You know, I see God in everything. I became a Christian uh, my freshman year in college. I, you know, I did not grow up as a Christian, but the young lady that I met when I was 16 years old, who became my wife and has been my wife for 46 and a half years. In May, it'll be 47 years. She was a very dedicated Christian. And, and she's the one that, you know, took me to church and I heard the gospel and my life completely changed. Old things are passed away and all things became new. And God is in every part of my life and my family life and my work life. And even in, you know, in wrestling, you know, I've had people say to me, how could you go in there when you know who's going to win, you know who's going to lose and whatever? And I said, no, the only thing that was important to me was how good of a job did I do? Did I do the very best that I could do in the ring? And, you know, I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. I didn't do anything illegal. And I entertained a whole lot of people. So it was not a big deal. But, you know, you seek God, you, you pray, Lord, keep me safe, because it's real easy to break, real easy to break your neck you know, while you're in that ring and being thrown all over the place. So I don't know how people do it without God myself. Wow. So you didn't grow up Christian. No, I did not. What were your thoughts on God as a kid? My mom grew up as a Jehovah's Witness. 
And my dad was a long distance truck driver and a fifth degree redneck. He didn't care anything about God. And But my mom growing up, she knew that there were just some things that didn't add up, you know, with uh, Jehovah's Witness. And she asked questions and she was not allowed to ask questions. You just believe it. They were from South Alabama and they moved to Central Florida. And my dad was gone all the time as a long distance truck driver. And one day there was a pastor just knocking on doors in our neighborhood. And when he knocked on our door, uh, my mom said, you know, I've been praying for somebody like you for a long time. And so she invited him in. He sat at our dinner table and she just asked all these questions that she had on her heart. And he was a wonderful, wonderful pastor. And he was able to answer those questions. And so my mom accepted Christ right there at the table at that meeting with that pastor. And then she was the beginning of the spiritual heritage of our family. So she started taking me to church. I didn't like it because, you know, I like being off on Sundays. And so she started taking me to church and my dad came home. My dad didn't want to go, but that pastor, he came to, came to my house when my dad was working on his truck. He'd go out and talk to him and hand him tools. And he took my dad fishing and he just got to know him. And then on a Sunday, I still remember on a Sunday night, this big truck driver dad of mine, and neither one of my parents had any education whatsoever. My dad had a third grade education. My mom had a seventh grade education. But my dad prayed on a Sunday night and uh, asked Christ to come into his life and his life changed. And I, that was one of the things that changed me. He was a barroom brawler. And I said, if God can change this man, he can change anybody. And then I met my girlfriend who became my wife and when I was 16. And so, you know, just all of those things started adding up. And then when she took me to church and I heard uh, Dr. Jess Moody uh, preach, it was the first time that I understood the gospel. So that was the beginning of it right there. Do you think that pastor influenced the way that you've become a pastor? Oh, absolutely. He was the neatest guy, Rena. He was the neatest guy. He was the pastor of the First Baptist of West Palm. He was Burt Reynolds' pastor. It was the largest church in Florida at that time, and one of the largest in the United States. And uh, Jess Moody was just an unbelievable guy. I mean, I, I just believe, you know, when I looked at him, I thought, that's what Jesus is like. He just influenced me so much. And I just, I wanted to be the same kind of pastor that he was. He, he lived it. He walked it. He was the same guy at home as he was at church. He was the same guy in the community as he was at church. You know, there was no phoniness about him. Uh, He was a human. He made mistakes, but he was just one of the most godly men I've ever met in my life. That's really awesome. In the movie, it depicted you as going door to door and living it and being a part of people's lives like a real life vigilante. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, see, that was the thing. Uh, Dr. Moody, uh, he always said, when when you go to a church, he said, you put a pen down and then you just draw a a five mile radius and that's your Jerusalem. And those are the people that God wants you to minister to. And so I just, you know, the only way to do that, they're not going to come to me. Uh, You got to go to them. So I would go out and invite people to church and things like that. But, you know, I had a, a real sweet young mom that her children to church and she'd put them in our children's program. And then she was always the last one to come into church and she'd be the first one to leave. One particular Sunday, she came in, she had sunglasses on. And after the service was over, I always stood at the front door and shook hands and hugged necks with people as they left. 
And on this particular day, she was the last person to go out. And she came and she took me by the hand and she had her head down and she took my hand with both of hers. And I could see tears coming down her cheeks. And I, I lifted her glasses and she had two black eyes. And I said, you know, did your husband do that? And she said, yes. And, and I said, well, I'm going to go see him. And she was, oh, no, he'll hurt you. And I said, I'm, I'm not worried about it. You know, I went to the house and I called him out and I said, you know, I came by to see how you would do against someone who was able to fight back. I said, because you're a bully and bullies only pick on people that they know they can beat. And I said, I don't know how anybody could hit the mother of his children. I don't know how anybody could treat someone that God had entrusted to you to be the priest, prophet, and provider of your home, and you do that, you know? And I said, so let's see how you do against somebody who could fight back. He answered that challenge, and that was how the, the Mass Saint started, you know, because we, we had a little dance in the front yard, and, and he never hit her again. That was the beginning of the mass saint. And then it just seemed that I just had episode after episode where, you know, I'm doing things more as a professional wrestler than I was as a pastor. I had a great influence in my life. If you read the book, there's a, a little lady, Miss Edna, who is played by Diane Carroll in the movie. Well, she was from my childhood. Uh, the movie brought her up to real life, but she was from my childhood. And every chapter of my book, there is a lesson that I learned from her. There was one thing she used to always say. She quoted Edmund Burke. The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. And so she challenged me, you know, you, you never stand back and, and let evil triumph. You've got to do something to combat it. And so I, I got that from her. And I just, when I saw evil, I couldn't stand back. You know, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. And I just chose to do something instead of nothing. Do you feel like you've had the opportunity throughout your life to come into those situations? I do. I do. You know, I, I still, you know, I'm 67 and I still have those opportunities. When I do that, I mean, I walk into a McDonald's and, and some, you know, horse's butt is giving a little 16 year old girl a hard time over his order and just being a complete butt, you know, and this little girl's at that time, you know, making minimum wage. And here's this guy, you know, giving her all this gruff. And it's not beyond me to put my hand on his shoulder and squeeze as hard as I can and say, hey, lighten up. You know, this kid's working for minimum wage and she should be treated with a little bit more respect than you're giving her. I can't stand back when I see people mistreated. You know, in my last church, I'm walking out the door and I'm going to the hospital to visit somebody who'd had a heart attack. And I, I hear some guy dropping the F-bomb in the parking lot. And that'll get your attention. You know, somebody dropping an F-bomb in a church parking lot. And I look around and I see this guy hitting his pregnant girlfriend. And every other word out of his mouth is that filthy word. And so I screamed across the parking lot at him, hey, you know, and he turned around and said, hey, and then he started cussing at me. We had a school that met on our campus at that time. And my daughter, my youngest daughter was one of their teachers. She, she's a music teacher. And so she's walking out the door. She sees me and she hears this guy and she sees me and I'm, I took my glasses off. I took my coat off. I took my tie off and I'm walking towards her. And, and my daughter got in front of me. She, she told me this. She got in front of me and put her hands on my chest saying, no, dad, no, dad, no, dad. I, I didn't even remember that. I didn't even remember. But, you know, she moved and, and I got I went up to the guy and I said, hey, you know, you're in a church parking lot. There's kids around. 
I said, you shouldn't be talking that way. And you certainly shouldn't be hitting this young lady who is pregnant. And, and he screamed at me and he cussed at me. And then he, you know, started moving towards me. And it was just second nature. You know, I took him down. I took him down on the parking lot. We wrestled on the parking lot and I body slammed him and put my knee in his throat. And I said, you know, I'm going to let you up and I don't want to ever see you hit this young lady. I don't want to ever hear you say those bad words here. And it just, it just happened so quick. And, you know, I had to stand before the church and apologize for that one too. But they, uh, they gave me a standing ovation. They didn't, you know, they didn't get rid of me or anything. I thought they were going to get rid of me, but they did. Wow. I love that. Yeah. That's awesome. Another part of the movie, I wrote this down, was, you know, there was a big donor at the church that essentially held up the church. And I think there's a lot of congregations like that where people donate for posturing. Right. But they're not always the best people. Right. I thought it was interesting that you were okay saying, I'll make money another way. I don't have to take your money. Right. You know, I just don't think the church should ever be held hostage by people like that. You know, I, I believe when you're doing the right thing, God's going to provide, and He provided for us, and so you know it, it was okay with me. And you know, He changed. It was a good thing because He did change, and no longer had that kind of power that He thought He had. It, it worked out. You know, the movie changed that. It actually happened on a softball field, but the the movie was filmed in Sault Ste. Marie, Canada. When it was being filmed, it's like 20 degrees outside. So they changed it from a softball field to a basketball. When it really happened, and I tell the story in my book too, when it really happened, it was after the softball game and he was running his mouth and I told him to shut up. And and then he ran towards me. You know, when he ran towards me, it was like I had a devil on one shoulder and an angel on the other. And the devil was saying, hit him. And the angel was saying, you're a pastor. And the devil won because I decked him. And when he woke up, he wasn't very happy either. So I remember going home and calling my chairman of the deacons. And I said, hey, look, I got to tell you what I did. And I said, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm ashamed that I did it, but I, I did it. And I'll resign tomorrow. And about an hour, he called me and he said, well, I talked to all the deacons and they don't want the retired guy to preach. They want you to preach. And they said, we'll meet tomorrow afternoon and and just don't do anything, you know, irrational. I went to church that next morning and, you know, the whole time the service is going on, I just, I could not worship that morning. You know, I've got all these thoughts going through my mind. And so it was time for me to preach. I walked down in front of the church and I said, you know, I've heard about people giving the Lord's work a bloody nose. I just never thought I would be one of them. And I was yesterday. I said, I, I hit a member of the church. He's sitting right over there. He was, he, he was sitting over there and I, I called his name out and I said, I hit him. He's the most reprehensible human being I've ever met. And, but that was no reason to hit him. But I said, I apologize to you. I've asked God to forgive me. And I'm asking you as a congregation to forgive me. I couldn't get up there and preach without you knowing what had happened. At the second service, I had to do that all over again. And at the end of the second service, which was packed that morning, this guy on the second row stood up after I got through making my speech. He stood up and he said, I think we should stand in support of our pastor. And the entire church stood up and applauded. My wife and I were driving home that day. And I said, you know, what other pastor in the state of Florida can knock a member of his church on his rear end and get a standing ovation? But I did. I love that. That's amazing. Oh, my God. Wow. Crazy guy. Crazy, crazy. Yep. 
Another thing too, is I feel like the movie portrayed you as really evolving over time and, and being able to deliver your message. Was that true? Yeah. The movie portrayed me as a a bad preacher. I mean, a bad preacher of the gospel. I, I was never that bad. And my choir was never that bad, you know? None of that. That They did that for the movie. I was a good preacher, and I think I got better and better over the years. They still asked me to speak, and so that was a part of the movie that they made me the guy that couldn't preach, but it changed. It changed, but I did get better. What kind of preaching did you do as a father of two daughters? Every night when my girls were little, every night we had family devotions. We would read the Bible and, you know, we would talk about it and then we would all pray. There were just times when I would say to my girls, you know, Sunday daddy is preaching on this. And I just want you to know that if there's anybody in the church that needs it, it's me. I said, I I would feel like a hypocrite if I stood up and didn't tell you that, that I need this as much as anybody in the church. So I'm not preaching to people. I'm not preaching at people. I'm preaching what I need in my life and what everyone needs in their life too. So I couldn't be one way at church and another way at home. Those two girls of mine, the greatest gifts that God ever gave me. I'm so blessed. And there's a lot of pastor's kids that grow up, they leave the church. And I didn't want my girls to be like that. I I wanted my girls to grow up loving God and, and loving the church too. I never talked about the church at home. When my girls sat beside somebody in church, they didn't know who hated their dad and who who loved their dad because I didn't want them to know that people could be the way that they are. I was just very, very protective of them. I think that that is so important. How do you keep kids from rebelling? You know, I had a great pastor before, before I became a pastor. My wife and I were members of this church before I went to seminary. He used to preach on the family every year for a whole month. Every Sunday, he would preach a different past, a different message for the family. And my wife and I were like sponges because our girls were infants at that time. And we still have our Bibles from those days and the notes that we wrote in the Bible about bringing up children. It influenced me so much that when I became a pastor, I did that very same thing because I love the family and the family is disintegrating in America. And so every year I would preach on the family for a month. And that, that was the best month of my year because I just wanted to do everything that I could to help parents, to help husbands, to help wives, to help the family. One of the biggest things with with kids is consistency. Mom and dad have to be a united front. If my girls came to me and said, dad, can we do this? And I'd say, well, uh, did you talk to your mom about it? And they'd say, yeah. And I said, well, what did mom say? And mom said, we couldn't. I said, well, dad is going to agree with mom. You're not going to do it. And I never let them, I mean, we never let them become divisive for us. We were always on the same page when we were raising our kids. And our kids grew up with discipline, but they grew up with discipline with love. They found out that, you know, they weren't allowed to do everything that they might wanted to do. They had to learn about consequences. There are always consequences for your actions. You know, I I still remember my oldest daughter, who's probably older than you. My youngest daughter is 39. But my oldest daughter, I picked her up from school and I was taking her home and it was about a 15 mile trip. And so about seven miles, she said, oh, dad, dad, I I left my books at school. I need to get my books. I need to get my books. And I pulled off the side of the road and I looked at her. I said, Allison, 
I'm going to do this today. I said, but you need to remember to get all of your stuff when daddy picks you up. I said, because I'm never going to do this again. Do you understand? And she said, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Okay. So it was probably a month later. I picked her up. And again, we're almost home. And she said, oh, dad, I forgot this at school. I forgot this at school. I never slowed up. I said, you remember that conversation we had? And she said, oh, dad, I got, I got to have this for tomorrow. I said, I'll, I'll get you there early. I said, but I told you I would never do that again. You know how many times she left her books after that? Never. She never left them. It made an impression, you know. And also, if you tell your kids something and you do not follow through, they will never believe you. I mean, you have to follow through as a parent. You know, if you tell them the consequences and you do not follow through with that, they'll never believe you again. And they'll never have that respect for you again. And I, and I would tell you this too, Rena. You know, my girls are grown. There's been times when I've called them, I would think about something that happened. And I'd call one, one of them and I'd say, Allison, you know, I am so sorry. And Allison would, you know, she'd say, Dad, Dad, you did the right thing. Don't worry about it, you know. She said, just because you disciplined us, she said, you know, I don't have scars on me and I'm not on some, you know, show on TV telling what a lousy dad you are or whatever. She said, I'm raising my kids the same way you raised me. I, you know, I got six grandkids. I am greatly blessed. I was my daughter's first date, both of them. I always encouraged, you know, moms be your son's first date and dads be your daughter. My oldest daughter, when she was 16, I told her they could start dating when they were 16. I said, what would you like to do? And I took her to her favorite restaurant and then she wanted to see a movie. I still remember the movie. It was a league of their own. So we went to the restaurant and at the restaurant, uh, I told her she could order anything she wanted. She did. And uh, I gave her a locket while we were there. I, I, I handed it to her. I said, Allison, this is your purity locket. You opened it up and it was a picture of mom and dad. I said, this is a purity locket. And when I said that, she was like, dad, dad, dad. And I said, no, I said, I, I'm going to have this conversation with you. I said, your purity is something that is not to be given away. It is something that you give to the man that you want to spend the rest of your life with. And when you get married, you can give this locket back to us. And I said, you know, it only takes just a few seconds to screw your life up forever. You know, I took her to the movie. I gave her a great night. We walked, we got home. We walked up to the door. I kissed her on the cheek. And I said, anything less than this is not acceptable. I set the standard for the boys that she went out with. And I did that for my baby girl too. Did you give oh, any of the dates a hard time? Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. I'll never forget. Uh, answering the phone one time and, and I uh, picked it up and I said, hello. And there was a young man on the other one. He went, uh, yeah, is Allison there? And I said, nope. Click. And uh, my daughter came home the next day and she said, dad, so-and-so called and you said that I wasn't there. I said, yep. I said, you tell that young guy the next time he calls, he better say, hello, Dr. Whaley or hello, Reverend Whaley. This is so-and-so, identify himself and say, may I please speak to Allison? I said, that's fine. And a kid blew his horn one time too, when he went to, uh, came to pick her up and I walked outside and I told him, don't ever do that again. I said, you come up to the door, you come inside. So anyway, I mean, we had our moments, and, but you know, they forgave me for that. That is so sweet. Here's one of my little guys. He just brought me. Hey, what is your name? My name is Laser. Laser. Like oh. Eliezer. Okay. Eliezer. All right. Good to see you. Do you like wrestling? Kind of. Hey, you are a good looking young guy. How old are you? Nine. I have a grandson that's uh, 10 and I have one that's eight. 
So you're right in between there. You love your mom? Yeah. She's a pretty good lady? Mm. Well, you make sure you treat her good, okay? Well, it's good to meet you, Laser. Good Great to meet, to meet you. you. All righty. God bless you, buddy. Bye. I'm very oh. lucky. I have a great husband too. That is definitely, he made me he better. Is a, he is a great looking young man. Oh, wow. I have a, I have a grandson that's 10. I have one that's nine. So he's right in between there. I have six. I have Dax. Dax is 13. Charlie, her name is Charlotte, but we call her Charlie. Charlie is 12. Richie is 10. Wyatt is eight. And then my other daughter has two. Harmony. Harmony is six. And Shepard just turned four yesterday. We had his birthday party last night. So I got, I got six of just the most precious grandkids. I am so blessed. I really am. And oh, my gosh. What do you like doing with the grandkids? We have a camper. We have a fifth wheel. And we go camping every year. Uh, matter of fact, Thanksgiving, we were at Disney World. They have a campground called Fort Wilderness. We were there all week Thanksgiving. And so I had my oldest daughter and her husband, they have a camper. And then my son-in-law's mom and dad and his sister. And then my youngest daughter and her family, they came out and stayed with us in our camper. So I got to spend it with uh, all six of them that week. And anything I can do with them is, is fine with me because I know they're going to get to that age where they're not going to be around Noni and Papa very much anymore. So we're trying to get everything in while we can. Just want them to know how much we love them. I'm curious too, like, what do you want to pass on and what do you not want to pass on? I want to pass on to them that they make God a priority in their life. If they make God a priority in their life, it's amazing how things all together. You know, God's the one that wrote the book on how to live life. And if you follow the directions, it's amazing how it works. But I want to set, you know, a godly example to them. I'm just so blessed that my kids actually want to be around their mom and dad. So, you know, I I am so thankful for that. I want to know how the movie came about. When the book came out, my sister was working for Orange County Public School System at that time. And my sister gave a copy of the book to a friend of hers there. She was married to a guy that was the executive producer for the first three Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle movies that were blockbusters, you know, and his name was Kim Dawson. Kim Dawson produced those. And then he produced a movie with Jim Caviezel called The Bobby Jones Story, Stroke of Genius with Jim Caviezel. And then he produced a faith-based movie called Letters to God. I get this call from Kim Dawson. He wanted me to come to his office and he had uh, read my book and he was interested in making it into a movie. And I was just, I was dumbfounded. He kept me on the hook for about a year and they even had a screenplay written for it and it didn't work out. But during that time, I met other people in the movie business. And then I had another producer in Canada, in Toronto, call me up and he flew down here from Toronto and met me at Disney World. He was also very interested in making it into a movie and then, and then it didn't work out. And I was pretty frustrated. I mean, I was ready to put it on the shelf and just say, you know, let my grandkids take it off the shelf and say, hey, look what what Papa wrote, you know. But then that that started happening in 2010. So in February of 2013, I'm driving to the gym. I'm driving to the gym and my phone went off and I answered it. And it was that producer in Canada. And he said, has anybody done anything with your book? (sighs) No, 
And he said, oh, okay. He said, well, I'll, I'll get back to you. And I said, yeah, yeah, right. Thanks. I said, you're not going to hook me again. And then two weeks later, matter of fact, I'm driving back to the gym and my phone rang and I answered it and it was him. And he said, are you sitting down? And I said, yeah, as a matter of fact, I'm driving. He said, well, you might want to pull off the side of the road for a moment. I did. I pulled off the side of the road and he said, we're going to make you look into a movie. And I said, what? And he said, yep, we're going to make you look into a movie. We've already got this in place and this in place. And we're having the script written now. I was blown away. That's how it happened. The movie was filmed in November of 2013 in Sault Ste. Marie, Canada. Man, is it cold in Canada in November. Woo. I got to be on the set of the movie, you know, getting to meet Diane Carroll was just a real thrill. You know, I mean, my goodness, that lady was nominated for an Academy Award. You know, and here she is playing Miss Edna in, in the, my movie. I had worked against Rowdy Roddy Piper like 25 years before, and I hadn't seen him since then. And not only was he a great wrestler, but he was a great actor. That was, it was filmed in November. He passed away the following July. He died in his sleep. He had, a, uh, I think, a massive heart attack in his sleep. You know, we were the same exact age. But let me tell you this about Roddy Piper. Roddy Piper loved his family. If you look at any of his matches on YouTube, notice he's got his wedding ring on. He never took his wedding ring off. And he always wanted to be home on the weekend so he could be with his kids and his family. And he was, he was just a super guy. I just really, really was thrilled that they got him to play the part of the promoter in the movie. I didn't realize that was him. Yeah, that was Roddy Piper. Yeah, wow. Roddy, Roddy Piper. Yeah, he go was back great and, in it. Yeah. What was really it like was. being on set and seeing your story told? Oh, my God. It was just so surreal. You know, I had to pinch myself to be there. You know, I still remember they were filming some things and it was outside and the director had a tent because it was drizzling rain. My wife and I are standing there, you know, and shivering because it's about 20 degrees. And uh, the director, who's a real great guy, you know, he turned around and he saw me standing there and I saw him doing his microphone. He said, bring Pastor Chris and his wife a director's chair, bring it to the tent. And I said, oh, you don't have to do that. You know, bring them a chair. And they brought these two chairs and put them under the tent and had me there. Got me headphones so I could listen to what was going on. But that first time being on the set of a movie, and it's just really unbelievable how they do things. So they take, you know, one scene and they do it like three or four times. And it was, it was just uh, amazing. And then when they were doing the wrestling part, that was the great part, you know, because I, I showed up that morning. Uh, the driver picked me up and dropped me off at this big arena. When I saw the ring, my heart started beating, you know, and I went down and uh, I actually got one of the wrestlers to get in the ring with me because I, I was 59 at the time. So we got in the ring and I got to work and he body slammed me. You can see that if you go to YouTube, you put in the mass saying there's a behind the scene thing there and you can see me getting that body slam. It, it was just uh, just unbelievable. I, that's the only word I can tell you, Ms. Serena, is they were just unbelievable. Oh, how'd that feel on your body at 59? Hey, it felt great. I think it cracked every bone in my back, you know, it cracked it. So I felt good for a long time after that. Oh my God, no problem. that is such a great story. And yeah. what made you write the book? I know you were in the TV industry for a long time. So when Michael Landon died, nobody was making anything good and clean and moral on TV. The Little House on the Prairie, I still watch those. I mean, because... You know, you got a good dad, a good father, good husband. They don't make the pastor out to be some kind of jerk or charlatan. You know, the stories always had a good moral ending to it. 
And then he made Highway to Heaven. And Highway to Heaven was such a good show. And I thought, you know, I had so many things that happened to me in my life. And if I could get somebody to write about that, maybe, you know, somebody could make that into a TV series. And I tried to find somebody who would write my story and nobody would. And, and then one Sunday, you know, I, uh, excuse me, one Saturday, I just sat down at the computer and started writing. And I printed it off and I called my wife and I said, hey, look at this. And she sat down and read it and she said, hey, that's great. Keep going. The book was so easy to, to write because they were all things that happened to me. You know, I just told the story of Miss Edna and her influence on my life. And when I got through with it, you know, I was hoping that maybe, you know, somebody can make it into a TV series. Well, it didn't get made into a TV series, but it got made into a movie. And, uh, and I'm still holding out because one day uh, it might be a series on Netflix. You never know. I mean, I love that you're putting that out into the universe. And I think that that's part of having a dream. I just believe that, you know, we live in the greatest country in the world. Does it have flaws in it? Sure, it has flaws in it. But it's still the great. I, I wouldn't want to live any other place. I don't know of another place where you have the opportunity to go out and fulfill your dreams every day. And the only one that can tell you that you can't is yourself. If you give up, it's never going to happen. But as long as you have that dream and as long as you continue pursuing it, you know, that dream is still out there and it can still happen. Tell me about the new book. I have a second book that is already out. It's called Harold's Heavenly Christmas. It's a Christmas book. You know, when I was going to write a second book, I would, once you've had your book made into a movie, it kind of spoils you. And I said, what would have the best opportunity of being made into a movie? And my wife and I are big lovers of the Hallmark Christmas movies. You know, we're, we're junkies. I mean, we start watching them at the end of October and we watch them until they quit running them, which was this last Monday, I think. So I had an idea for a Christmas book. And so I wrote it and it got published. And uh, now that same producer that produced The Mass Saint is helping me to get this produced as a Hallmark movie. To be honest with you, Harold's Heavenly Christmas is better than any Hallmark movie. And the third book I actually wrote with an old wrestling buddy and it's called Mr. President. It's about two lives. There's a, a sleazy comedian that runs for president every four years. And he gets an autograph from celebrities. And unbeknownst to those celebrities, they're actually signing an agreement to be his vice presidential candidate. And so he uses that for publicity. And I mean, they sign the agreement, so there's nothing they can do. Well, he gets the World Heavyweight Wrestling Champion to give him an autograph, which he's actually signing to be the vice president. And then there's a big scandal with the Democrats and a big scandal with the Republicans. And the comedian wins. He becomes the president. And while he's making his acceptance speech, he has a heart attack. And it makes the world heavyweight wrestling champion the new president. And then he starts putting all of his wrestling buddies in his cabinet. It is a great, great book. And I'm working on getting it published right now. So it's a great, great book. That is very cool. And what's your dad like? Oh my gosh. He's going to love you. He and I grew up watching wrestling together. I have to uh, say my favorite wrestler growing up was Hacksaw Jim Duggan. <laughs> Hacksaw, yeah, he's not in the best of health right now. He's not doing very good, but he's a great, great guy. He really was. That's, that's pretty awesome. That's I just pretty awesome. loved his facial expressions. He was yeah. so over the top. Did you like The Undertaker? Yes, and you got to meet and wrestle The Undertaker. Oh, you've I got did. to talk about that. Yeah, I wrestled The Undertaker in 1988. 
you know, I got to the arena and I was not supposed to wrestle him. I, I wrestled somebody else in the early card and it was a Friday night. Anytime I wrestled on Friday night, the girls would go. And so as soon as I got through wrestling, I'd take a shower and get changed and meet them in the in the parking lot. And then we would go do every Friday was Friday night fun night. And we would go out and do stuff together, you know, because they were out of school and they could sleep late the next day. I wrestled. I got back to the dressing room and I'm taking my boots off. And the promoter came in and said, the guy that was going to wrestle Mark, the undertaker, was not going to be able to be there. And he needed somebody to work twice. And so I raised my hand. I said, I'll do it. I'll do it. And he said, okay, okay. So I had to, I get the referee and I said, hey, go out, find my girls in the crowd and tell them not to leave because I'm going to wrestle again. And so he goes out and he found them and he came back. He said, I found them. They're going to wait. I said, you didn't tell them who I was working against, did you? And he said, no, 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 I didn't tell them. You know, I get in the ring and I'm looking. I found found my wife and I found my girls and the lights went down. And then Mark Calloway, the undertaker, he starts walking in. And when my girls saw him, they, they were little bitty things. And when they saw him, they started crying. And then and my wife, her mouth was open like yours. It was like, she quickly reached over and grabbed her purse and started going through her purse, you know. And anyway, he got in the ring. We had our match. We went about 20 minutes. It was a great match. And, you know, it was just really good. No problems. And so later that night, we're driving back to Fort Worth. And uh, I look in the rearview mirror and both my girls were asleep. And I looked over at my wife and I said, hey, right before the match started, I noticed you grabbed your purse and you were going through your purse real frantically. I said, what were you doing? She said, she said I was looking for the checkbook to make sure you'd paid the insurance. <laughs> that was smart. True, I mean, true story. <laughs> yeah, I love that. Yeah. Were you ever nervous to go up against anyone? Oh, yeah, yeah. I, You know, when I was getting out of wrestling, there were a lot of football players that were getting into wrestling because they could extend their career. I wrestled a nose tackle for the San Diego Chargers. He was about 6'4", about 310 pounds, just solid. And he was he was what you call green. I mean, he, he didn't know what he was doing. And he threw me around that ring so much. I mean, I thought I was going to break my neck. I really did. It's the closest I've ever come to you know, being terrified. Matter of fact, when I got out of the ring, the next night I was wrestling and he was there and I told the promoter, I said, I don't know who he's working against, but it ain't going to be me. Okay. I said, unless you do a tag team and put me on his team. But I, I wrestled him, uh, Bruiser Brody, you know, really afraid of Bruiser Brody. And, you know, there were, there were some like that, but not as many as you would think, but there were some. Wow. Why did you finally leave? Yeah, I got out of wrestling at the height of my career. I was 33 years old. It was 1988. I graduated from seminary. My last three years in wrestling was when I was going to seminary in Fort Worth, Texas. I got my Master's of Divinity and graduated in May of 1988. And then I went to my first church. And so I left wrestling, my dream, to fulfill my calling, which was to be a pastor. And then I've been a pastor for over 30 years now. Okay. Another hard question. Yeah. Have you ever helped someone believe in God that didn't? Oh, yeah. Throughout my 30 years, of, over 30 years of ministry. Yeah. Yeah. A lot, a lot of people, a lot of people that come to church that are looking for answers. My job as a pastor is to help people do that and to find those answers. And so I've just really been blessed with many opportunities to to help people uh, come to know the Lord. And it's amazing that 
you know, since this movie has come out, since the book has come out, I get emails, I get messages uh, on Facebook from people literally all over the world who have seen the movie or read the book. You know, I'm going to continue telling people about God until I get called home by him. I'm never going to stop that. Wow, that's really beautiful. Is there anything that you would like to ask my dad? Yeah. My dad want... married his high school sweetheart too. Oh, yeah. That's great. My mom was 16 when they met. My dad. <gasps> Just like me and, him and my, my wife. That's awesome. Yeah. So, okay. I'd want to ask him a question. Ask him this. Just say, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. Ask him if he still believes that. If you ask me what's the message of the mass saint, it it is this. Failure is not final. You've made a mistake. That's not the end of it. You can overcome it. And also that God is the God of a second chance. There's a great passage in the Bible in, in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 18, where God told the prophet Jeremiah to go to the potter's house and he would teach him a great lesson. And so he went to the potter's house and he saw him, saw the potter working with a piece of clay. And when he got through with it, the Bible says that it was flawed in his hands or marred in the hands of the potter. And so the potter simply squished the clay back together again the same piece of clay, squished it back together, put it back on the wheel, and he made that same piece of clay into a new vessel. And then God said, cannot I do with you as the potter has done with the clay? Or as the clay is in the hands of the potter, so are you in my hand. And that's the story of my life. You know, when I gave my life to God, it was flawed. I mean, there was just so many things wrong. And God simply squished me back together again, and he put me back on the wheel and he made me into a new vessel. He used the same clay that was flawed to make a new vessel that was useful. I'll always be thankful for that. So anybody that's listening, you think, you know, you've messed up, that nothing's ever going to work out or whatever. That is not true. Give it to God. Let him, let him squish you back together and put you back on the wheel and make you into a new vessel. That is so inspiring and so beautiful. Thank you. I absolutely you. love that message. Thank you. You know, Rena, it has been a real joy and a real blessing getting to know you. You are so precious. I mean, if I could see you, I'd give you a big hug because you remind Aww. me of you remind me of my baby girl. Now let's switch it over to Grandpa. What a great story from Chris Whaley. Very moving and probably one of your best guests that you've had. And everyone should really catch this episode. I'm going to tell you a funny story. I had front row seats at the Boston Garden for the Bruno San Martino George Steele match. I might have mentioned this to you. And his manager was Lou Albano. And Marvin was there with me. And there was just a little old policeman. He might have been maybe 75 or 80 years old, a little gray haired fella. And this guy, rowdy and arrogant, comes out of the crowd where he's definitely had too much to drink. He's got a big beer in his hand. I think he put it down and he shoves this little uh, policeman, and knocks him on the ground. My dad saw that. He stepped up and knocked his ass right out. And Lou Albano took a look at him like, what the hell had just happened? Guy is on the ground. He gets up, picks up the drink and throws it out Lou Albano. And then Lou Albano kicks him. And then a couple of other younger security people take him away. But my dad saw a little guy get knocked down, didn't hesitate to stand up and knock that guy down. One of the things is that if you see someone being picked on or you see somebody is not being able to defend themselves 
and you just stand there and watch, your father, your grandfather has always been willing to step in there, even if they have to physically get into a fight. I got into a lot of fights when I was younger because I hung out with some, I guess they were nerdy kids or brainy kids because I was on the debate team and the chess team. Also being Jewish, where I lived in a neighborhood where there was a lot of people that didn't like Jews and they would pick on people that couldn't defend themselves, which you would call bullies. I was right there and helping or fighting, taking them on if I had to myself. Isn't that what Chris Whaley is doing also? He's willing to stand up mentally, physically, whatever tool is necessary, not to let injustice occur if he sees it. And I applaud him for that because, like I said, I'm the same way or believe the same way as my father did and my grandfather and his grandfather believed, that you stand up and take action and you do not let indecent or evil win out and just stand still. My dad served this country where, like I said, a lot of his people on his ship were killed. He wanted to still service and, and go back to the front lines during World War II. And he got pulled off because of his ability of communication and was put on Admiral Nimitz's ship and was the communication officer for the bombing of Nagasaki in uh, Japan and Hiroshima, where he's the guy that communicated those bombings. These were great sacrifices to make sure that we overcome the evil empires that existed. I think it's wonderful that Chris has been able to understand that he was able to do his life dream of being a wrestler, and really a wrestler is really being an actor as well. Tell me what you thought about his wrestling adventures. I thought these were beautiful, hands-on experiences. He was willing to give up his body with all kinds of crazy injuries that he's been able to experience. The camaraderie ship of working with wrestlers, working with football players, spending their careers, really a very physical, a very physical sport. You're talking about, even though some of these matches are promoted, really as a storytelling movie itself or show, I, I love how he gives McMahon credit for turning it into a major billion dollar business by uniting all of the fragmented businesses in all the different sections of the country taking it to national TV and taking it international and really making it into a very credible profession. And it gave Chris an opportunity to do what he loved to do and be out there on the stage and be out there as part of this uh, exciting adventure. And yet I love how he brings up that still the big picture is that we're here to service God and to service our family and to carry on a legacy for his family. Uh, I just love that. Obviously, I have similar beliefs. And I know what it is to be a hands-on fellow. I know what it is to stand up for what's right and wrong and to be in action when you see injustice being done. If a person isn't accountable for their own actions at some point, when they've made a mistake, yes, you want to try to help correct them and give them another chance. But if they're going to continually make those mistakes or they're going to continually show that they don't really give a darn, you have to finally be able to say, hey, you're on your own and see if they can learn the lesson where you don't give in and don't uh, just let them get away with uh, being rewarded for any, any action that they do. I find myself saying that too. It's true. But what's beautiful is that he understands that his mission, where a young lady is the one who actually gave him that saying, that uh, you don't want to stand idle and let evil triumph. There's a way that you can correct that. 
injustice through a speech or whether it's through some even a physical action that he's always willing to stand up for what's right. And uh, I love that. I really do. Even though at times it could be inappropriate, father's done the same thing and his father's done the same thing and his father's done the same thing and his father's done the same thing. That's something that's been passed on. But we also have to remember that we're nowhere if God is not in our lives. Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy Show. Now you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and TuneIn. If you've enjoyed this episode of the Better Call Daddy Show, please feel free to review it at ratethispodcast.com slash bettercalldaddy. Add Better Call Daddy Podcast on IG at Rena Friedman Watts on LinkedIn.com. Hold up. 